The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the book. We're going to jump back and forth in our collaborative way several times rather than giving a formal talk. Uh, we'll just tell you uh, what we find exciting about the project. And what I find most exciting is uh, we got 13 chapters that are trying to showcase a new way of looking at China during the Mao years, and that's by looking at everyday life at the grassroots. Instead of starting with policies and campaigns at the top, instead of starting with Mao's mind and the campaigns that he started with, we're actually looking at lived experience. And what we found is all kinds of variation, all kinds of diversity uh, in how people lived through, suffered through, and dealt with the challenges of Maoism from the mid-1950s all the way to the end of the 1970s is the temporal scope that we're looking for. So we've got a ton of diverse experiences in the chapters of the book. And the way that we got at these, di the, these diverse experiences was by having a, starting with a really diverse group of authors. Uh, we have uh, in our group of authors five uh, Chinese, I'll say, four from the PRC, one from Taiwan, authors whose work we translated from Chinese into English. We have three European scholars, probably the top three uh, European scholars working on the Mao period, Steve Smith, Michael Schoenhals, Daniel Lees, uh, and North American chapters. And we also have a really interesting, unique group of sources that I would call grassroots sources, including documents that you can find in flea markets like diaries, uh, police files, uh, other archival documents that have made their way out into society. We have oral history interviews. We have documents from county and municipal archives as well, Red Guard newsletters. Uh, and this is the first book, I think, that really puts together these unconventional sources next to the standard campaign-based narrative of the Mao period that you're going to read about in the pages of the People's Daily. And it puts that together, and it compares the two. And what we learned by doing this is we say what concerned Mao was not the same thing that concerned a gay factory worker in Hunan province or concerned a rural school, te school teacher. I mean, uh, what mattered to these people were actually very different things. Uh, and what we also learned is that most people didn't wake up and say, the Great Leap Forward is on. Let's do this Great Leap Forward. Uh, they didn't wake up and say, cultural revolution, how is our cultural revolution going to go today? They woke up and they, their concerns were the same as the ones that you and I woke up with this morning. It's work, it's family, it's relationships, it's food, uh, it's clothing. All of these things are actually, those are the priorities. Uh, all these things are affected by politics, right? Uh, everyday life was definitely politicized during the Mao period. We're not saying that politics weren't important. Uh, but by starting with the everyday, Instead of starting with politics, we get a different picture of the period, and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, so let me talk about the first chapter to give you a sense of an example of what I'm talking about. The first chapter is by a Chinese historian based in China named Yang Kuei-sung. Yang Kuei-sung uh, was a factory worker himself during the 1970s, and uh, he spent half a year in jail in 1976 for the crime of having written a counter-revolutionary poem. And uh, after that, he has become probably the most prominent and prolific Chinese historian writing on the Mao period and on even earlier periods in China today. And he, what, in the course of his, his research, he came across a big sack of files about a factory worker uh, who had, his factory moved from Shanghai to Henan, and uh, this factory worker got in trouble. He became labeled as a bad element, and uh, he was actually sentenced to seven years in prison as a bad element in 1977 and that he's got this file that goes through the entire case, including a lot of the writing of this factory worker himself. Uh, the factory worker is called Zhang Qiren, not, not his real name, uh, the dirty guy, basically, in Chinese. Zhang Qiren uh, 
started getting in really big trouble in 1970 when he got investigated during the one strike three anti-movement, which is one of these mini-movements mini during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and uh, during this movement, he was forced to convince, confess that he had a lot of affairs with men in his factory. So he's gay, he's constantly having affairs with people who he's working with. He's married at the time, he has a wife, he has a child. They live in Shanghai, far away. He sees them hardly at all, maybe once a year if he's lucky. Um, and during this extended separation, he's having a lot of affairs with other factory workers, and this gets him labeled as a bad element in his factory, uh, his bad element behavior. But actually, he doesn't get punished at first in the early 1970s, other than being said, you're going to stay in the factory, you're a bad element, we're going to reform you through labor. But he doesn't get reformed through labor, it doesn't work, uh, because he keeps having affairs with new, young factory members that come in. Uh, and so he knows that he's in trouble, he knows he's being watched, but he doesn't stop. Uh, he cannot stop himself. So let me read you a short passage here uh, from the chapter. Between August 1973 to July 1976, Zong and Sun had sex more than 10 times, arranging their trysts in locations, including the factory's communications room, air raid shelter, pantry, and milling room. In 1976, Zong also struck up a relationship with a young male coworker named Xiao, who soon became, soon became the primary object of Zong's affections. Zong frequently visited Xiao's rural residence where the two would have sex. Before long, Zong's unexplained disappearances resulted in the discovery of his liaison, and this time he faced conviction and real imprisonment. So this is the story we get here is suppression and punishment, but it's not the story of suppression and punishment that we're used to hearing when we think about the Mao period. Uh, his bosses were annoyed with him. His bad behavior was having an effect on morale in the factory, right? Uh, so they tell him to stop, they label him as a bad element, uh, but if we assume that the Mao years were defined by fear and terror, that is true, but it doesn't quite capture what happened in this case because he was afraid, but he wasn't afraid enough to stop having the affairs even after he got in trouble. Uh, so this is a human story where repression is part of it. Repression is battling human nature, and human nature is holding its own in this story, basically. And the other thing I like about this chapter is it sheds light on the millions of couples that were forced to live apart. Uh, during the Mao period, and affairs, gay and straight, were actually a really common result of families because of their jobless assignments having to live apart. Uh, so let, let me turn it over to Matt now to talk more. About sure. Um, so the examples that Jeremy's covered uh, come from the first sort of thematic section of the volume, which deals with issues of political crime and punishment. Um, basically, just to give uh, those who haven't seen the book before an overview, uh, the chapters covered four main um, thematic, uh, or themes rather. Um, the second being economic mobilization. Uh, the third was culture and propaganda. And the uh, last was state violence. And so what we're going to do uh, in the remainder of the talk is, is to continue to draw out some of the highlights um, from those sections and some of the major empirical findings. Um, just to kind of frame uh, those findings generally and to talk a little bit about the book and some of its main arguments. Um, we think basically that what Maoism at the grassroots shows is that in state-society relations there were a lot of, not necessarily an infinite number of, but there were a lot of strategies that individuals, groups, etc. could engage in uh, in order to perhaps, let us say, mitigate uh, the effects of state intrusion on their lives. Um, we're not trying to argue 
against, I think, a fairly well-established and well-documented narrative that state violence and even terror uh, was at certain historical moments part of people's lives as well. But we're simply trying to put that within a context of human everyday experience. And so therefore to uh, include other aspects of that experience as well and think about how they all relate. Um, and so some of what we do see, as Jeremy has noted, is people pushing back against the state, people evading the state, uh, people sort of carrying on as they will, uh, you know, for as, as long as they're able to. Um, and yet at the same time, what we do, and, and in some ways, uh, you know, this is represented by the fact that the last section does deal with state violence, um, show that in, in the final instance, the state often did resort to uh, violence to um, deal with uh, people. Um, who could not be dealt with otherwise, not just for political crimes. And what the, what the book also shows, I think, is that a wide range of behaviors were politicized, um, but were not necessarily what we would think of as political. Um, that being another, uh, I think, key argument as well. So, you know, what, what is the significance here? What are the stakes before we get into the um, individual chapters? Well, I think that uh, historians tend to be most of us splitters more than lumpers, and so we've sort of, you know, we've complicated the narrative a bit, right? We've, we've sort of shown that there was a, a, a wider diversity of experience than um, has previously perhaps been described for this era, and you know that that I think stands as an empirical uh, contribution. Why is this important? Um, you know, I think that it forces us perhaps to rethink uh, connections between the Mao years and the preceding Republican and wartime eras, and then the post-Mao uh, reform era in some interesting ways. On the one hand, you've got the Republican era, supposedly uh, an era of greater openness uh, in which the, the state was far more limited in terms of what it was able to achieve. Uh, after the Mao years, right, supposedly we sort of moved to this moment uh, that is kinder and gentler by comparison, um, but in finding at least some suggestive evidence uh, that tells us the state wasn't necessarily everywhere during the Mao years and the people did experience uh, that period differently, then we perhaps do begin to open the door to drawing some parallels uh, between, say, themes concerning the Mao years and themes concerning, uh, which, are, which are well established and which concern other eras in China's history. And uh, then, as we're going to discuss, um, and, and especially toward the conclusion, I think that then potentially uh, that allows us to understand China uh, under Mao, not necessarily as historical anomaly, um, but part of a longer narrative of modern Chinese history that historians are still grappling with and still trying to describe. This book doesn't necessarily have all the answers, but again, you know, it sort of opens the, opens the door to some bigger questions. So I mentioned the first chapter, how uh, Bad Element was made. This is Yang Kuei-Song's chapter. Let me talk about my own chapter a little bit uh, as well. So I did what I do, and I found some documents in the flea market in Tianjin, and these are class status label reinvestigation forms from 1964, 65, 66, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. People's class status labels are getting reinvestigated. That might be stressful for them. And then I went online uh, to the main place where you can buy used books in China, and I typed in class status label reinvestigation form. And you can do this yourself. 
Uh, and if you're in China, then you can buy all the files that kind of came up under that. So I got, I amassed enough. And actually, there, there's some universities, uh, history departments are collecting these forms as well. So that's how this uh, project started. Is I just randomly came across them when I realized something is going on here I didn't know about. Let me try to find more. And so this is as part of the four cleanups movement in 1964, 65, and 66. Every rural families class status is supposed to be reinvestigated. Uh, that's part of the four cleanups policy. And uh, you know everybody has a class status label during the mob period. In the, in the countryside, you're a poor peasant. You might be a middle peasant, rich peasant landlord. Uh, and this is determined during land reform in the early 50s usually based on each family's economic status three years before liberation, whenever that happened. You take a snapshot of your economic status three years before liberation. And then the Great Leap Forward happens. And Mao's explanation of the Great Leap Forward is that uh, well, we didn't do land reform thoroughly enough because there's all these class enemies who have become party secretaries in villages, and it's their fault that the Great Leap Forward went bad. So this is Mao's way, way of absolving his own blame in the Great Leap Forward by saying, oh, class enemies are everywhere. This is why we need to reinvestigate every family's class status. And so what happens during the class, during the four cleanups is work teams go in, and uh, they say, uh, you know, tell us your story again. They have the land reform paperwork usually, and then they, they, they try to figure out who hid their true class nature. And so you have some people being punished. I, found, I, thought, I read about one family that was originally labeled as a, uh, well, they were originally middle peasant, and then there became this new designation of lower middle peasant. Uh, and then the, land, the work team comes in and says, no, you guys are actually upper middle, upper middle peasant. And they say, what? How could you call us upper middle peasant? And they say, oh, actually, because you're protesting, you're rich peasant now. Uh, <laughs> so this family actually, they get punished with a rich peasant label. So some people get punished because they're, they're of village politics, basically. Other times, people get rewarded. So you know we tend to think of repression and punishment during the mob period. I've actually found more cases of people getting a better class label. Often it's upper middle peasants or middle peasants becoming lower middle peasants, which allows them membership in the poor and lower middle peasant association, which is a good politically political thing, that identity to have during the mid-1960s. And so usually this is a way for people to reward their friends. Uh, but there's instability, and because you know your class label might change, uh, you're stressed out. Everybody knows this might happen, and there's all kinds of stress and conflicts that come about from this. And so this is a new way of looking at class status labels. The people who have written about class status labels during the Mao period are absolutely right that this was really important. It affected your ability to get a job. It affected your ability to get a new university if you had a bad class status label. Uh, if, and if you had a bad class status label, you'd become you know, a target of every political campaign that comes along and you're a pariah. So the stakes are really high, but what I found out is that uh, it was dynamic and fluid. It could change and uh, it was extremely confusing. So it actually not every rural family in China got reinvestigated during the four cleanups. It didn't make it, right? Because the policy kept changing and this kind of fell off of the policy guidelines during the four cleanups and some people kept going. That It didn't say stop doing it. Uh, it didn't say keep doing it. Some people kept doing it. Some people stopped doing it. And it didn't get to every province and every village. So it's, it's confusing. It's fluid. And the people that got affected spent uh, many years fighting against it. They had a stake in, in their class label. So when the class label system basically gets canceled in 1979, uh, the document says, we're not going to call children of landlords and rich peasants. Uh, they're not going to have a class status of landlord and rich peasant anymore. Everybody gets a status of commune member in 1979. And the people that thought that they had been erroneously labeled as landlords said, no, I don't want to be a commune member. You got it wrong. I was a middle peasant. 
And so they're fighting. They're still fighting. Even after the thing gets canceled, the people still have a stake and say, no, you got it wrong. I want you to admit that you got it wrong. Uh, and so you do see people pushing back. Uh, that's, that's what I wanted to say about my chapter. I'll just talk about the chapter three before uh, letting you look at, uh, at, the, at the next section. Chapter three is by Cao Shuji. I just want to talk about his research method. Cao uh, Shuji is a professor at uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University. And what he does is he, every summer, takes a team of students into the hinterland to rural archives and wines and dines the archive director to the extent that they're given free access to take photographs of the entire archive, anything that they can get their hands on. So they spend two or three days with cameras pushing buttons to take back to Shanghai these archives from the countryside. And that's how he found this story of the rural anti-rightist movement. So I think one of the biggest findings in this chapter is yes, there was a rural anti-rightist movement in some parts of China. We know that university professors uh, had a hard time during the anti-rightist movement. We know that city officials had a hard time uh, but the rural movement, it, first of all, it happened. Second of all, it happened later. Uh, and so everybody who was part of the so-called airing of views during the Hundred Flowers, which came later, knew that if you said something bad and complained about, about the system or about your workplace, you might be labeled as a rightist. They knew it. Uh, and there were still a number of people who decided they were going to complain. They could not stop themselves from complaining about the situation around them, and they got hammered and, they, and, and labeled as rightists. So Cao Shuji's puzzle in this, in this chapter is these people knew they were going to be labeled as rightists. Why couldn't they just shut up? Why couldn't they just be quiet? And the answer is not that they were stupid. It's not that they were naive. It's that they had a conscience, and they were mad. Uh, they were mostly mad about the state grain monopoly in Hunan during the mid-1950s because their families were hungry. These were school teachers, rural school teachers, who uh, said, okay, fine, if you're going to make me say, if you're going to make me complain, here's what I want to complain about. Uh, and so that was a, a really actually uh, encouraging story, especially in the context of China today, where we, we still have repression. Uh, it was really encouraging to, to have Sal's conclusion, to hear Sal's conclusion that people uh, had a conscience and they felt obligated to speak up uh, because of their conscience. Would, could I trouble you to, to move to the next slide here? Part two is mobilization. We have a chapter about textile work in rural China based by Jakob Eiferth, based mostly, mostly on oral history. We have, uh, have a chapter about scientific experiment in, uh, among youth, and we have a chapter that I co-authored based on a diary uh, found in Tianjin that I have a ton to say about, but I think I'm going to hold off, and if you want to ask about any of these, we'll leave time to talk about it during Q&A, and uh, I'll turn it over to Matt to talk about the last two parts of the book. Um, okay. Uh, so... Um, we could we have the next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, thanks. The um, third section of the book dealt with uh, issues related to um, cultural communication, or what we could also call propaganda. Uh, let me let me cover the content of uh, some of these sections in a slightly different way. Um, by highlighting what might be new or revisionist. I think basically that there have been numerous attempts to understand uh, what people thought in Mao's China uh, through the lens of official propaganda. And what the chapters in this section basically end up telling us, uh, two things really. One, as you might guess, uh, not everybody bought the propaganda and you know people um, came up with their own 
ideas about what movements meant and criticized the government, as Jeremy's just described, uh, at, at, at key moments, et cetera, et cetera. But what we also found was that there were numerous channels through which information, including culture, entered China, circulated throughout China, uh, that really haven't been described before. Let me just give you a few examples drawing from um, my own chapter, but also some of the others. Uh, one was that in, in the post Great Leap Forward moment, uh, rural inhabitants um, as one of many uh, schemes for um, ensuring their economic livelihood uh, which is to say, you know, there were there were some members of rural society, say, who were performers or who had been performers prior to uh, being made to engage in manual work on a, a commune, um, and they began to perform uh, plays, some of which were quite satirical, some of which were about the government, etc. Uh, you know, just outside the margins of urban areas like Shanghai, uh, and. These were entertainments that I don't think anybody's really discussed uh, when talking about Mao's China. That's one example. There, there are other examples that might seem a little less esoteric. Uh, another, um, there, there was plenty of Samizdat publication going on in China during the Mao years. There were illicit and illegal publications that were produced and circulated in China, and that's really not a phenomenon that's been described before. Uh, another. Um, foreign culture smuggled into China that, that entered China through uh, legal means as well. For example, films from Hong Kong that became touchstones for youth crazes, uh, that became you know models for emulation. Young people wanted to dress a certain way, comb their hair a certain way. All all stuff that would be uh, you know familiar when looking at, at youth culture around the world definitely existed in China during this period, and we have some evidence to show that as well. Um, People, usually sort of petty merchants, uh, sold um, pre-1949 publications openly in markets throughout cities. Occasionally they got shut down, but they didn't always get shut down. Um, and so, you know, people enjoyed uh, culture from the uh, pre-1949 uh, literary world, uh, world of, um, you know, comics and uh, pulp uh, books and, and magazines, etc. Not everyone, but, but some did. And finally, even within state spaces, performers did not always perform what they were supposed to perform, say what they were supposed to say, etc. Uh, and again, hasn't really been described. What does this all add up to exactly? Um, I think that when talking about culture during the Mao years, we're really talking about a very rich and diverse phenomenon. We need to look beyond state cultural sources. That emerges basically as one of the main themes of the volume. But even though there have been a lot of important new studies based on archival revelations, even archives themselves are state sources. Uh, and um, we need to be looking deeper at other sorts of ephemera that tell us more of the story of this important period. Um, another key issue related to culture that we had some amazing work on, I want to highlight particularly the chapter by Xiaofen uh, Wang, is on religion during the Mao years. Who thinks of religion during the Mao years? It was supposed to have disappeared. Um, but uh, not only did it survive, in some cases, in some key moments, it thrived. And it didn't just thrive in defiance of the state. It occasionally thrived because state officials 
or members of families of state officials were themselves members of religious organizations that were committed to uh, organizing annual dragon boat races and worshiping uh, local gods, et cetera. And that went on as well. Again, not everywhere, but it did go on. There hasn't been much coverage of that. Uh, the findings on religion kind of bleed over. We could just have the last slide. This is actually the end. Um, into this section dealing with state violence. Um, here, this set of chapters basically coalesces around three, I think, equally fascinating themes for thinking about this period. I would say those are violence, ethnicity, and religion. Um, and the, the overlap is, is interesting, complex, and in many cases unexpected. In uh, Guizhou province, Miao people in the 1950s were fed up with state taxation and collectivization, formed millenarian religions, formed militias, resisted the state, threatened officials with violence, and ultimately uh, you know, an armed state response was required in order to uh, bring down tensions. Um, Stephen Smith's chapter uh, covers um, a very broad historical period and shows that basically from the 1950s through the 1950s, millenarian religion and anti-state violence coexisted, uh, had to be dealt with um, at all points along the continuum by internal state security forces. And there was constant state concern about what uh, you know, multiple small acts might uh, add up to if allowed to go unchecked. Along China's ethnic frontiers in Xinjiang, for example, um, very interesting evidence about uh, how state efforts to uh, secularize society uh, resulted in radicalization. Uh, of, I mean, these are themes that are not out of place in our contemporary world either, led to radicalization of youth, university students, intellectuals, etc. Uh, that Han ethnic tensions um, were sometimes handled badly by local officials and better by the center, uh, which sort of had to intervene to calm down uh, local official overreaction uh, to uh, uh, what were seen as disturbing local trends. Um, and that cross-border movement of people uh, culminating with um, an, an attempted mass exodus from Xinjiang into adjacent uh, Central Asia um, occurred and kind of highlighted and you know uh, could be seen as highlighting um, both the sensitivity of that border, uh, the sort of uh, porous nature of Northwestern China vis-a-vis -vis Central Asia, and the persistence of sort of cross-border uh, imaginaries, if not actual connections, during this period. Um, and I think ultimately uh, that section in particular shows us how there really was throughout the Mao years um, quite a lot of, uh, we don't want to call it anti-state activity, but attempts at semi-autonomous social organization um, often in defiance of what we're known to be state policies. And so at this point, we're probably going to wrap up. A few last words. I'll yeah. say a few last words. Uh, I mean, it's, it's supposedly it's the 50th anniversary of the Cultural Revolution starting is this month, right? And I, I love it and I hate it. Like, I love it because suddenly people are interested in having a discussion about the Cultural Revolution and Maoist China. This, you know, I've devoted my professional career to trying to understand more of. So I love that, right? I love that people are talking about it and thinking about it. What I hate is uh, it doesn't, the Cultural Revolution, if we take a starting date of May 1966 and an ending date of Mao dying in late 1976, 
uh, those dates just don't work in terms of understanding timelines, local timelines at the grassroots in terms of everyday life. Those do not work for me. So I'm convinced that I think a next project, and Steve Smith gets at it uh, with his chapter that goes into the 1980s, is actually it doesn't make sense to divide up China into the Mao period or high socialism and Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening up. It, that makes sense in terms of elite politics, I think. There was a real transition in leadership and in policy. Uh, but when you look at topics at the grassroots and you look at all these unresolved problems that Matt was talking about, ethnic uh, minorities, religion, um, the, the marginalization of rural areas, uh, those, things, those problems are unresolved and they don't suddenly turn over a new page in 1976 with the end of the Cultural Revolution, they go on. So I think the, the next thing that, I think that I've learned from this book and that I'd like to move on with in my own research and in possible new uh, collaborative books is looking at the 70s and 80s as a single unit because timelines at the grassroots don't necessarily adhere to 66, 76. I think things go into the 80s. Uh, it's the same people, right? It's the same Communist Party bureaucracy. They're using the same forms. I mean, the class status label forms are gone by the, by the 1980s. You can still buy them. Uh, you can still find them. They're not that useful anymore. But, you know, say an, an industrial accident happens, that form is the same in 1975 as it is in 1983. Uh, So those kind of things, uh, uh, local timelines, I think, uh, we need to take into account. And uh, the timing of turning points can be completely different when you're looking at elite uh, versus grassroots. So I will leave it there. Absolutely. Final words from you? Uh, Final words. Uh, Just just really, you know, to maybe set things up in a provocative way for the Q&A. Taken as a whole, we could return to the question, okay, what, what does this volume show? Um, and I think that there are a couple of ways of looking at it. Uh, one of the most um, perhaps provocative, uh, challenging um, would be, again, to say that often below a level of, I think, what from a state perspective uh, we would have to call adequate visibility, um, there was often a lot of social activity uh, which took forms which were not necessarily prescribed by the state. And while I think some have critically said then uh, of this claim, okay, well, so you're, you're basically saying that China during the Mao years wasn't about violence, it wasn't about repression, it was just about people finding ways to do whatever they wanted. Uh, and you're, you're trying to argue that they were successful. Um, actually, I think in some ways we're arguing the opposite. I think we're arguing uh, that this empirical evidence allows us to understand uh, not just about social experience, but more about, um, from a state perspective, what we might call the paranoid style in Chinese politics, um, which is to say, and this is an issue that has been addressed marvelously going all the way back to late imperial uh, Chinese history by, by the, the, the great historian uh, Philip Kuhn, um, the, the state is always concerned with what it can't see. The state is always concerned with what it can't predict. And the fact that there were unseeable and unpredictable forces in Mao's China uh, perhaps helps to explain um, you know, that when, for example, Mao launches the Cultural Revolution uh, you know, for, for the stated reason that uh, uh, capitalism is returning in Chinese society, that wasn't just a pretext, it wasn't just an excuse. You actually see signs that during the early 1960s, market forces are returning and an economy outside of the state economy is actually beginning to grow. And you know, in some ways this is 
uh, something that's very marvelous about Chinese history because it's very marvelous about all human societies, which is that you know people are inventive and ingenious, and they find ways to pursue uh, their 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 own ends and and to at least try uh, to meet or I don't know for the economists satisfy their own wants. Um, and we have to take those forces into account as well when looking at modern Chinese history. We can't just have a narrative that is all about Mao and how the policies were formulated and how they were implemented in order to understand what actually happened on the ground. And that's why we, you know, close the book by, or sorry, close the introduction um, by, uh, you know, questioning uh, the validity of even calling this the Mao Zedong era. Uh, you know, other than that this is a sort of useful set of signposts for saying the time period between 1949 and 1976. A note on the closing of the book, I, I, I do want to acknowledge, because we've covered mainly the main chapters, but the epilogue by Vivian Shu. I mean, this is not a book that is trying to say that previous scholarship got it wrong and we're getting it right. I mean, quite to the contrary. Social scientists have known about, you know, China from these perspectives for a long time, I think, and the work of uh, thinkers like Vivian Shu, uh, whose work on the reach of the state in some ways really uh, anticipates a lot of the themes that this book deals with, um, is the work that we see ourselves as building on, and therefore, uh, you know, we were honored by uh, uh, Vivian's willingness to write an epilogue for the book in which she uh, tries to frame the book and its evidence and its conclusions within uh, a sort of broader intellectual trajectory. And if that sounds intriguing, you should find the book. Um, so I think it's a good time for yeah. questions and answers. Yes. Yeah. Please introduce sure. yourself. Sure. I'm Bill Imbruster, retired journalist. Thank you for a very interesting talk. What were the four cleanups? You referred to them, but didn't define them. Four cleanups. Uh, well, you start with the small four cleanups, and then you get to the big four cleanups. And the big four cleanups are the ones that matter in this movement. I mean, the, f the small four cleanups were basically different types of economic uh, misconduct related to this rise of market activity in the early 1960s. So I won't name those for you because I don't know them off the top of my head. The big four cleanups I can name for you, I believe, and that was to clean up politics, to clean up economics or the economy, uh, to clean up ideology, and to clean up the is it culture of the organization. Uh, What's called culture. the <laughs> you, you want, yeah, I think it's culture. Uh, anyway, you got to clean up four big things, and this is this is uh, it, I might have gotten one of them wrong, uh, but this is the this is 1964, 65 is also known as the socialist education movement, dealing with the aftermath of the Great Leap Famine. I just had a Carl Munzner at Fordham Law School. I, I had uh, quite quite interested. It sounds like an, an outstanding book, and the, the the way in which you sort of are looking not simply at elite politics, but the intersection of like you know how, how individuals are living their lives in the light of Steve. I find that I think that's going to be really really intriguing. Um, I, I had one question, which is. It, uh, it sounds like many of the materials that you're using are themselves from the state. So to the extent that you're looking at what's taking place through class label forms or through um, self-confession documents or through uh, you know, documents, the document that the state itself has produced, you're still looking at it through the lens of here's, here's the individual's life and we're looking at it through some sort of record that the state has made. Are there materials, I mean, it, you know, there are materials, I can imagine personal diaries that are 
somebody just had in their house that never passed through the state. Are, are there materials? Are, are, are you also having a window through stuff that's not intermediated by the state? And you know, to what extent is it possible to understand those two decades by looking at things that citizens themselves have produced, personal you know, letters, husband and wife or something, that doesn't go through a state apparatus in some way? I could talk about uh, you, you should, I mean, a diary. I mean, yeah. the diary yeah. is the one that's the least mediated by the state because it's not produced for the state. Mm -hmm. Actually, a lot of diaries were meant to be read by other people other than the author. They're sort of, you leave them out to show that your political thoughts are loyal to Mao. But the diary that Sha Ching Ching found in a flea market in Tianjin uh, doesn't, to me, seem mediated or produced for anybody else. This is one that, uh, that I read the diary when we kind of put our heads together to, and we read it very differently. Sha Ching was very interested in the descriptions of the aftermath of the Tangshan earthquake, which leveled huge parts of Tianjin as well. Uh, so he describes the aftermath of the earthquake and just no help is coming uh, over the first few days and all kinds of rumors are swirling. And then this young, this teenager who's writing the diary is hoping that the earthquake will get him out of being sent down to the countryside. And so he's devoting all his time running around to different offices and his teacher's trying to get out of it. So Sha Ching, the Chinese author who... Uh, has dropped out of academia. Uh, he works at the Shanghai Library. He dropped out of academia because a rival accused him of, of being uh, too politically liberal, basically. This is happening in Chinese universities, so he's not writing a politically correct story, and he said, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to be in my PhD program. Uh, but he's still doing history, luckily, and still writing it. I found a lot of other interesting things in this diary. Uh, this, I mean, this guy was just really anxious and urban life in Tianjin was really stressful and anxious. And he describes him, uh, you know, he he describes somebody cutting him off on a on a on his bicycle ride, and he gets in a fight. Uh, his brother is in jail uh, for having stolen something. He gets mad and he throws a rock through his neighbor's window, uh, but he doesn't tell anybody. We just the diary is the only place we get that. So that's an example of something that the state doesn't get involved. But then the state does come to him, and he gets really mad because police officers have come to his house because he's making he's he salvaged wood from earthquake ruins and he's making furniture out of it. And so he's accused of stealing state property, this house belongs to the state, and of capitalist activity as well. So, but I don't see that how the, I don't have the police forms from that at all. They might exist, I doubt they do. Uh, but the, that's, that's why I think the diary is a, is a rare one and a special one. So if, if I can just extend that, I mean, photographs, uh, I think, and there are people who, are, who have gathered and, and digitized and, and archived online photographs um, different kind of source, certainly. Uh, there's been some interest in home movies that were apparently produced during the period, which you know would be really uh, lovely if one was able to get uh, their hands on them, um, just to get a sense. But you know, these are also private documents too, in a way. And you, you don't want to be too voyeuristic. You don't want to be too, uh, you know, sensationalistic. But um, I think that things produced by individuals that have survived to the present day are one key source. And another would have to be sort of trying to read between the lines uh, when looking at those state documents and not taking the state's categories seriously necessarily as, as a description of what this is, but at least understanding, okay. And you know, for, for the culture stuff that I described, that's a lot of what's going uh, on there. You know, the, the state labels a lot of things pornographic. And, you know, obviously that's not really a reference to pornography. It's just simply like illicit or contraband materials, things that were seen as futile and superstitious, et cetera. You know, maybe salacious, maybe sexual. I don't know. But it, you, you would have to do more research to know. So you're absolutely right to question, you know, we don't want to take the state's categories at face value. There are other sources out there 
and when using the state sources, we have to tread very carefully. Absolutely. I know there was another question. Yeah, I'm interested in one or both of you talking about. Who are you? I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Marco. Uh, thank you. That's usually my question. Uh, I'm Jan Barris with the National Committee on U.S. China Relations. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the study of the Cultural Revolution within China and how has it evolved over since the 70s or 80s? Were, was anybody able to, brave enough, stupid enough to be writing about it in the 70s, 80s period? Has that changed? Is it now more difficult than it was 10 years ago? Um, so from both an academic perspective and then um, several people in this room, I know, at least Mara and Carl, I think Carl is with us, um, have met a very interesting man by the name of Fan Jianchuan, who I assume you know, uh, the Fan Jianchuan Museum in Chengdu, in Sichuan, who has a fetish, he has a, he's, an he's an obsessive collector, and much of what he has collected revolves around the Cultural Revolution. And he has storerooms full of diaries that he says he will not publish or make public until he's sure most of the people are dead because he doesn't want to be voyeuristic or get people in trouble. And so I'm just wondering if there are others like him who have not necessarily academics, but people who are looking at this, collecting this, etc. This, by this I mean cultural memorabilia, memorabilia from the Cultural Revolution. Absolutely, yeah. I, uh, yeah, most of the people who buy the documents from the flea markets are Chinese uh, collectors and historians, amateur historians who care about the period and live through it and want to collect these valuable documents. And they've created uh, underground, not really legal journals that they're written on Microsoft Word. They're put out on PDF. And uh, Matt can talk more about that because he's involved in archiving them and making them available to the public. Uh, so you do have, but, but they, you can't make any money doing it, right? You can't have a career. So these are retirees or people who do it on the side. And there's, I, I know a number of uh, professors in top Chinese universities who love to study the Cultural Revolution, uh, but they can't publish anything on it. Uh, because when this historical re resolution about certain problems in Chinese Communist Party history is passed after the Cultural Revolution, this verdict says Cultural Revolution was bad. Um, Cultural Revolution was one of Mao's mistakes. Mao overall was good, but he made some mistakes. Cultural Revolution was one of the, his ultra-leftist mistakes. Uh, and so we're not going to go into any detail other than that. And, and, uh, and that's been the line ever since then. And there's been some room for people to publish memoirs about how they suffered at the hands of the Gang of Four, basically, or other bad guys. There's not a whole lot of memoirs talking about the people who hit people. Uh, that's rare, right? Uh, but there's no reward in China for writing about the Cultural Revolution. People do it because they feel like it's important and they have the time and they make the time to do it, but there's no academic space for it necessarily, which is why that part why we had uh, you know, five Chinese authors is we're trying to make that space uh, available to them. Yeah, I mean, I would just list a, a few impressions I've had and, and maybe they add up, add up to something. Um, one is that it, the sort of um, liberating of discussion doesn't always move in one direction, right? Which is to say that I think when we were doing research, say in 2004, 5, 6, uh, there were books that were coming out about the Cultural Revolution. People were writing about the Cultural Revolution. Academics in China were writing and publishing books on the Cultural Revolution. You know, they were sort of dry, you know, mainly policy-focused, uh, 
overviews, you know, not necessarily the kind of grassroots history that we're talking about today, but there was scholarship on the cultural revolution. I sat in on uh, lectures at Beijing University with the history of the cultural revolution and student violence and the experience of student violence was discussed, you know, in, a, in an academic forum with students and, and a professor leading the discussion. In, a, in a balanced Way, it was basically a professor who experienced these events firsthand, talking about the violence and talking about uh, his own experiences as a participant. Not locating himself specifically in that narrative, but offering what was essentially a firsthand account. Uh, but you know, presented as as he was analyzing it as, as history. It wasn't just uh, you know sort of rambling or incoherent uh, narrative. Um, so. You know, there, there were attempts, in other words, to historicize the Cultural Revolution and talk about the violence. I don't think that that's going on now. You know, so that's what I mean about not moving in one direction. I think that there was a moment of tremendous openness. Which uh, was when? Well, I, like we're saying, I mean, I can't speak for the years. This is just for myself. I can't speak for the years before uh, I was in China doing research, um, and that so starts basically in 2004. Uh, Jeremy's had different experiences, so you might have a different perspective. But I would say also, you know, there are unofficial journals that are published for subscriber lists of less than roughly 200 people that circulate in China electronically. Uh, and the people who are involved in these sorts of activities, some of them are, you know, state reporters. It's not just, you know, sort of disgruntled or, you know, uh, uh, marginal people, um, but people who are interested in history, and we archive those um, on a website, prchistory.org. Um, you can also find uh, similar journals about the anti-rightist movement. Uh, and, you know, yes, there's a critical tone being taken, but the discussion is really just an attempt to grapple with what happened be it in a systemic, empirically verifiable, historiogra historiographically informed way. I mean, it's unofficial history, but it is history. And it's being produced in China. It's not just people, say, outside the West, uh, sorry, outside of China in the West who are talking about the Cultural Revolution. I think that's an important point to be made as well. And then finally, you know, what discussions are happening in China? This has been coming out in various fora. But within elite institutions, universities like Beida, Tsinghua, you can have much more open discussions than you can in, in, in other, you know, educational institutions within China. And so, you know, I, I find the private collectors fascinating, and that's another kind of way of thinking about and talking about the cultural revolution. But there definitely is academic study. Wherever there's space for academic study, you'll find academics trying to study it, I think. And there has been space, for sure. I don't know if that's an adequate response. <coughs> um, Martin Rivlin from Columbia and CUNY. Actually, Matthew, can I ask you first, is the fellow from Beida in Hongpiao, or is it someone else? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I play my cards a little closer to the chest on this stuff, and I really apologize. I just don't have, uh, I, I couldn't say. Okay. Because he's written a book on the web. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, no, I, I apologize. Okay. Um, I wanted to be a little provocative also. So from what you said, would you see, and it's ironic because Frank Decatur's book on the cultural revolution just came out a few yeah. days ago. Um, would you see most of his books as oversimplified, or, or do you think there's room for reading the minds between you and him? I'm just wondering. <laughs> you have to explain to everybody else what, what this issue is. is. Right. I think that's a fair, 
Yeah, I mean, I not 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 to push back, but oversimplified in the sense that you think that this was all Mao's master plan to unleash terror and ruin on Chinese society. That's how we need to understand the Mao years. I think that might potentially be an oversimplification of Frank's work as well. Um, I guess what I would say is we, we, we've talked about this issue, Jeremy and I, and I suppose that what I would say is this: I think that a lot of what he describes can be seen throughout the period of the Mao years. That was, with respect to this recent book, I think there's an argument in there that post-Cultural Revolution state collapse kind of allows for the flourishing of new social forces in ways that anticipate the reform period. I think you could argue that there are multiple moments during which you know, that phenomenon uh, can be observed. And so uh, Frank's work is tremendously rich. He's an amazing historian. Uh, his, his source base is unparalleled. Um, but if you're talking about that particular book, then I think that some of the points that it makes concerning the cultural revolution, cultural revolution specifically could actually be made for the period of the Mao years as a whole. Jeremy. I think our book is, a, is good. I, th I like Maoism at the grassroots. Uh, and, and I, we told you why. I, we told you why. Frank Decoder's written now three books. I haven't read the Cultural Revolution one. I'm going to try to read it with an open mind because scholars who are ha like us, we've been very critical. I've been critical in print of Frank Decoder, uh, not just for being oversimplified, but for going in with his Great Leap Famine book. He has Mao's Great Famine. He also has the, the Tragedy of Liberation are the two books that I've read and commented on in print. And, and I, I feel like he goes in with a predetermined agenda of gloom and doom and applies that blanket across all of China and so he goes and looks for sources that fit that narrative, and he finds them, right? They're there. I found them, too, and they are very exciting to find a really juicy, violent source of death and destruction, And because that's way more interesting than one about things working smoothly, right? I mean, uh, most of the sources are about things working smoothly with a few problems. Uh, but when you only are going for the death and destruction, uh, and then in, in some cases he's just sloppy or misreading the sources in terms of just not understanding the Chinese, uh, which I think we have to bring out. And then if, so if we don't trust him on that, if he's saying, you know, if, if Mao says it's okay if half of, to let half the people die, uh, which is what Frank Decoder is claiming, and anybody who has actually read the document in the context in which Mao makes that remark, Mao was talking about industrial projects and saying we have to kill half of these industrial projects because we don't have the resources to carry them out properly. Uh, and then Decoder, if you question him on that, will say, well, how callous is that to refer to industrial projects as people? Uh, but that's actually, he's, he's conceding the point, right? That he actually misread and mischaracterized that document in the first place. Uh, so yeah, sloppy with sources. But I have heard uh, people who have been as critical as we have of Frank Decoder's first two books on the Mao period have read The Cultural Revolution and say, he listened. Uh, he, he listened to the critics. He's much more careful with this third book. I hope they're right. I hope they're right. So I, I'm going to read it with an open mind. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, it's just come out. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. I mean, as a kind of add-on there, I suppose, you know, I think Frank himself, interested in you know freedom and the dignity of human beings, uh, you know, um, might want to respond to the question of whether uh, we do a service or a disservice to Chinese history and how we think about people in China uh, during that period simply as victims of Mao. If I could just make a comment that I, I, I thank Chris, you for. Tell us who you oh, I'm Chris Kwok. I I'm not from anywhere. I'm just I work for the federal government. Uh, I'm interested in Chinese history. My dad lived through the Cultural Revolution, and it, I think it really reflects the stories that he told me. You know, he had a bad political background, but he was allowed to go to college. But once he got to college, 
there were certain professors he was not allowed to take classes with because they were the best. And he had bad political background. And I went with him back to visit his friends 50 years later. And they talked about it at, at the table. So I think there is a sort of very interesting lived experience at that level that's very complicated. You know, and uh, thank you for bringing that to light. Thanks for sharing your experience. Stefan Rimner, I'm at the uh, Weatherhead East Asian Institute at Columbia University. Uh, thank you both very much for uh, for your presentations. I I wondered uh, since this project obviously puts you in a very unique position to actually think on a national scale in a much more nuanced way um, than than than, for instance, uh, Frank Dickert, because you have this kaleidoscopic view on, on local case studies. I was wondering whether any kind of um, social geography emerges if you reflect on the sort of space between the contributions. Any kind of social uh, geography that would um, show new pockets of, of resistance on particular geographic or social areas um, that would show more resistance across the board um, than others. Um, I'm not sure whether you could offer any reflections on that. I, I really like this idea of social geography. I mean, I think in some ways that's, at least when I think about the volume, that's a question that I've definitely grappled with as well. Um, I mean, one, one that we talked about earlier this afternoon is simply that uh, I would want to ask um, you know, of, of this book, uh, is it possible to distinguish between, say, the frontiers of the geopolitical body uh, of China and the frontiers um, that exist within, you know, quote unquote, China proper, but that are outside of uh, urban spaces and economically better off uh, historically, perhaps uh, better described uh, parts of China, right? I think that when we think about China today, there's this idea that frontier experience, you know, mainly for reasons of visible difference, like ethnicity, et cetera, really somehow differs from experience within China. Um, after working on this book, that that distinction kind of came into question for me. I mean, anybody who knows much about rural China, Jeremy certainly knows a great deal more than I do. Uh, knows that rural China can be a very violent place. I mean, you know, we don't just need to locate violence and exclusion on China's, along China's geopolitical borders. There's plenty of violence and exclusion to go around uh, even within uh, other parts of China. I mean, to the point of pockets of resistance. I don't know if you have take on that. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, I mean, crudely, yeah, the farther you get from Beijing, the more space you have for uh, resistance and the more time you have for it to ferment and grow. So that's what we see in Wang Haiguang's chapter about this uprising in Guizhou in 1956-57. Uh, and I think more generally, the farther you get from a city, whatever big city it is, the more space you have uh, for religious activities uh, to flourish, for market-type activities to flourish without getting noticed. But also the more uh, extreme violence that we see during the Mao period, uh, like the massacres that Su Yang has written about in his book about collective violence, those happen really far from Beijing. Although there's one exception, uh, the Daxing massacre was still a rural one, 
uh, but mostly you're just talking Guangxi, Guangdong, rural areas uh, where so somebody has this idea of we got to kill all the class enemies and their children to make sure the children don't come back and get revenge on us. Uh, in order to win this this political battle, you see those kind of massacres, which we don't touch on too much in the book, too much, but Suyang's written about this. Those, it's crud crudely speaking, again, Suyang has written about the geography of this. Uh, yeah, you got to kind of be get far enough away that the news doesn't get to the to the capital, the provincial capital, in time for somebody to intervene. And I mean, just to extend that, just briefly, like I think that our book, in some ways, really still is in dialogue with a lot of scholarship on state-society relations that tends to focus on issues of, uh, you know, state coercion, violence, propaganda, et cetera. It's just we're trying to write that history uh, against the grain, if you will, and you know, are interested in seeing what we find. And so we've found what we found. But I think that there are very interesting social geographies that could be constructed if one was to look at, for example, the economy. Um, you know, if if one was to look at uh, well, you know, it, it, it has been done by uh, uh, others. If, if one was to look at changes in you know sort of gender, ethnicity, uh, demographic changes throughout China, et cetera, it wouldn't necessarily refer to resistance, but it would you know give us a, a better sense of the map. And I mean, one thing that's been really exciting about this project that also makes it very preliminary is we're still just grappling with what the map, uh, you know, should look like, what its basic you know cartographic features should be. And so this book kind of carries on in a certain tradition, but there are certainly other cartographies that could be developed by other scholars, hopefully, if they will. Yeah. Marco? Marco Landman with the National Committee. When you started, Jeremy, talking about the gay guy and all the trouble he was getting into, my first thought was, I don't believe a word of it. He's got some enemy who's framing him. And that brought me to think about these flea markets and diaries and other materials that you've found. Why are they being sold at flea markets? And how do you decide that they're reliable? How do you verify this stuff? And how do you keep yourself from getting arrested? Because there have been people, scholars who've been arrested for buying stuff in flea markets. About the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, uh, that, those are all really good questions. I mean, uh, it, for me, it, it you know does this document pass the smell test? And you literally see it, and you uh, you feel it, and, and the dust is there, it. and you can smell the mildew on it, and it seems like okay, this is credibly from the time period it purports to be from. Uh, for Yang Kuei Song's. Uh, the, 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 his chapter, I've seen similar uh, dossiers, basically, about political cases, about sex cases, uh, that have all of the red stamps and the officers' names of the police. So his is a, almost a legal case being built against this gay factory worker that actually doesn't start with him being gay and doesn't start with him being framed. It's just one of many, everybody's, not everybody, but many people are getting investigated over the course of their careers if they want to be a cadre, basically. So he, cadres have to be periodically investigated, and it, it starts uh, an investigation into his political history, uh, where he actually worked for the Nationalists uh, as a medic for a while. And then he, we finally get into the story of his gay affairs, which are corroborated by his lovers in the factory. And so you get a large enough body, and it looks real, and it looks good. Uh, I, I mean, it looks credible. Uh, 
and I trust Yang Kui Song that that he that it made sense to him to to be verifiable, and that's the way I do it too. And I found things that actually do look a little fishy, and then I just put totally put them aside. Uh, I for for the four cleanups period, uh, villages had to write the class history of their village as well, and I found a class history uh, that had been I don't it claimed to have been written in 1966. Uh, but it was put together in a file that I took apart the file and I found newspapers from 1980 uh, in between, like as padding for the file. So I thought, well, that's weird. It, it, this doesn't tell me that this was written in 1980, but it tells me that somebody after 1980 put together this file for whatever reason. I can't explain it, so I'm just not going to use it, right? So you have to be careful in that way, certainly. Uh, I feel like uh, these documents have been de facto declassified by being leaked out. And I was not the leaker. The purchaser is not the leaker. The seller is not the leaker of these documents um, that are, somebody decided these were not important enough to keep uh, and they need to be discarded. And then they make their way to the flea market. Uh, but yeah, definitely it's, uh, it's something that's, you got to take seriously. The last few times I've gone to the flea markets in Tianjin, uh, there's not that much there, and the, my contacts there tell me, oh yeah, the TV crew came through recently uh, to show that we, that you got to be really careful about selling state secrets, which is really ill-defined and not defined at all. I mean, according to the archival law, anything over 30 years old should be uh, open, uh, and of course it's not. Uh, and so they're scared, and they just keep their stuff at home, and don't bring out, or they keep the good stuff under a pile of legally published books, basically. Uh, but I was saying, uh, I was saying earlier, I think that uh, there are some people in China who don't want these stories to be told. They want to conceal things. There are some people in China who do want these stories to be told. They want, they want to reveal things. And there are enough of the revealers who are interested in, in these stories seeing the light of day uh, that the documents still get out there and people want us to be writing about them, I think, and, and that's why we're able to do it. Bill? Yes. Um, I believe May 25th is the 50th anniversary of the posting of the first Dadza Val and maybe the officials at the start of, of the Cultural Revolution. Do you think that there will be any formal commemoration of the Cultural Revolution at all, or are they just going to ignore it for the most part? Well, I think what we've seen is uh, ignoring for the most part. I mean, I've been wrestling with this because it's obviously an issue of interest to a great number of uh, people. I mean, people who I've seen show interest in this question um, within journalism, say, within uh, intellectual circles, academic circles outside of China. This is something Jeremy and I have been talking about today as well. I mean, it's it's hard to think of why the Chinese government would want to commemorate that day. What, what would the parallel be in another political context? Why? First slaves arrive in America. I thought about let's that. Let's remember that. That's you right. Know, that's like, right. No, I mean, what, what, I actually, no, it's, it's funny you should mention that because I, I, as, as soon as this came up, I started looking, you know, how, how do we remember the Trail of Tears, for example? Right. You know? um, and and uh, so that's, that's my take there. I mean, I, I, I'm interested in why there's a question of why the Chinese government is or isn't commemorating this because it seems like such an odd event to commemorate in a way associated as it is with political chaos, 
with bad decisions. Well, but uh, you we, know, we do observe anniversaries of the dropping of the atomic bombs. How observed? To remember that as the end of you know the war, not yeah. so much as to remember the dropping of the bomb. I mean, there's no museum in America devoted to African American slavery until recently. Well, there's right, but that by by a private, you know, you know, right. Let me put it more strongly. I personally have been some. I mean, you can stop me. Uh, but you know, I, I've been somewhat mystified by this idea that we should be putting pressure on China's government to commemorate or to otherwise remember the Cultural Revolution. That's not to say that I don't think it's a, it certainly shouldn't be swept under the rug, but I don't know what an official act of commemoration would actually look like. Can we imagine what that would other look like? Other than an apology. Other than, yeah, and, and to, to whom? Because, and, and this does get into some, you know, sort of sensitive contemporary politics. Who should be apologizing? Who should be apologized to? Those are obviously uh, cans of worms that no one really uh, wants to open, is my understanding. There was that commemoration event in the Great Hall of the People, uh, just like yeah, well, I mean, a different context, right? A <laughs> revival of yeah. Yeah, no, and that's who was behind that's that, great. I mean, yeah, and that's... what were they commemorating exactly? Yeah, yeah, great question. Shirley. Hi, uh, my name is Shirley. Yeah, I'm a lecturer at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Um, thank you so much for um, introducing your very important um, volume. Um, I, you know. In your introductory remarks, you talked about um, kind of what your, you know, what your these case studies collectively show about the nature of the Chinese state and its um, kind of in the long in its long durée history from the late imperial period to the present, and the na nature of state side relations. But I mean, do you think that do you think that your your volume sheds light on um, comparisons? with other totalitarian state society relations of the 20th century, or do you think that that would be, you know, not not fair? Like, for example, um, I can think of, you know, for example, the study of everyday life or ordinary life under, um, you know, Hitler's Germany or um, Stalin's Soviet Union are, you know, some of the first comparisons that I think Yang Jishen mentions in his introductory remarks to this book on the Great Big Famine, right, Tombstone. Um, do you, or do you think that that would be oversimplifying? Um, was that something that came to your mind when you were kind of framing your book about, you know, highlighting everyday life, ordinary life under yeah, I mean, you do see lots, lots of commonalities and ties, especially with Soviet Union. I mean, the, the archives opened up slightly earlier, and there was a revolution slightly earlier after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s, where people were finding all kinds of documents about petition letters and uh, oppression and diaries. And Sheila Fitzpatrick has been one of the leading scholars who, who writes about everyday Stalinism. And then our challenge uh, in writing, a, in, in trying to look at China from the grassroots during this period is to you know not just do that over again for China, right? Uh, because there are so many parallels, but there are so many differences as well. Just in terms of uh, they're both really diverse places, and so the local, I think the local focus, and you know what is happening in this specific place at this specific time, and how is that uh, different from the plan? I think is part of what we're trying to do. It, it almost always is different from the way that the plan was intended. But yeah, there are, there, there are definitely lots of commonalities. Well, but the, well, yeah. the, the main difference, of course, is that the Chinese Communist Party is still in power, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. um, 
there's a great deal more scholarly and societal freedom to talk about ordinary life under. I mean, certainly both. Sure. I mean, both of us, you know, we read and admire work by scholars like Sheila Fitzpatrick. Uh, you know, I, I think the comparisons are interesting, and at the same time, I, you know, we uh, live in a maybe it's different. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 to, to, to be serious, we, we live, you know, if, if we're talking about the West, then we live within a, a, a society, a, a, a civilization even, in which associating other political systems with fascism, for example, with historical fascism, or with the excesses of Stalinism, um, is a very powerful statement about the nature of that society and its political system and even its people. And I'm not saying that those questions shouldn't be explored. You could argue that we sort of punted on that question and didn't, you know, sort of, uh, because obviously it comes to mind for people. It, it came to mind for us as well. Um, so why isn't it addressed directly? Uh, I think that people should continue to struggle with this. Tom, last question. My name is Tom Hoffaker. I work for Teach for America. Uh, so obviously the two of you are white Americans researching and writing about a, a pretty sensitive time in, in China's history, I guess it could be said. And I don't think anyone is going to confuse you for the uh, retired Chinese amateur historians as you're walking around these markets. So I'm curious to hear about your experience researching, building relationships, and, and how your, your work has been received in China. Uh, well, I mean, the key would be to get this book translated into Chinese, and we would get a really broad Chinese readership, and that would be uh, fantastic, and then we'd have all kinds of people praising us and attacking us in, the, in, a, in a really beneficial way. Are you I mean, trying to do that? Uh, hopefully we can do it. Hopefully we can do it. I mean, uh, an earlier edited volume that I did with Paul Pickowitz, Dilemmas of Victory, did get published in Hong Kong in simplified characters. The first time Chinese University Press ever published a book in simplified characters because they knew they wanted to have the mainland tourists coming down and buying it. And that book has made me into a celebrity when I go to China, uh, when I go to Chinese universities, because the grad students there are reading it, right? And it's just so much easier and faster for them to read it in Chinese, and that's wonderful. Uh, when I go to the, when I went to the flea markets, uh, it's different now. But when during the heyday, uh, you know, of, of flea market searches, I would just go around and talk to the talk to the document peddlers, give them my phone number, tell them what I was working on and they would almost have a chance to guide my project because they would have a different understanding of what I was looking for than what I told them, right? I mean, because they, they lived through it. And they would give me a call early, you know, 6 a.m. They, they say, 6, 7 a.m. They're like, I got this thing. I think you might be interested. You got to come to the market today. Um, and I, you know, I would try to bargain with them, of course, but I, I would also know that, you know, willingly, and willingly pay this sort of imperialism tax is what I called it, right? I mean, I'm going to be paying double. Uh, and just accept that, right? It's still priceless to me to get my hands on some of these great things that I got, uh, and that was fine. Uh, but I would, uh, going into the village and doing oral history interviews was harder, right? Because, I mean, there are white tourists at flea markets looking for trinkets, mm -hmm. and so my presence there was not that surprising, even though I was one of the few people buying the documents. My presence in the village is surprising, and the police did come and kick me out twice of the countryside. Uh, you know, one time I made the mistake of going 
back to the county seat for lunch right when the middle school was letting out for lunch. And so I got surrounded by 100 kids really excited to see me in this, in this rural county town. Uh, and I tried to extricate myself before the authorities came, but I was too late. And so I, they just said, what are you doing? It's not safe for you to be here. For your safety, please leave and don't come back unless you have an official escort. And that's another thing happened to me uh, another time. I tried to wear hats. Like, I think the only way would like, I tried to wear hats and squat down, uh, waiting for the bus out of the village, but that was really the only, that, that didn't work either. It didn't quite work. You know, to, to end, because we are sort of wrapping up on, on you know, uh, this, I think, uh, set of comments, um, but I'll throw it back to you to see if you agree. I mean, we, we all, we all owe a great debt. I mean, all of us who do research owe a great debt to the people who we talk to and you know the people who point us to war sources, uh, the archivists, um, the interviewees, uh, the other scholars, um, and that at least in the case of a lot of this research, uh, those people are all in China, and so you know this is a work that in a lot of ways is very much informed by uh, you know people whose names don't appear on the book, uh, whose names may not even appear in the acknowledgments. Um, I used to think when I was doing research that, you know, it would be okay to talk about all of it uh, because um, things were opening, you know, and it was getting easier to research these topics and talk about them openly. I don't feel that way anymore. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting moment to be in. Uh, but I definitely do want to acknowledge um, the many helpful, uh, you know, and um, caring and extremely insightful. I mean, everybody reflects on their own experience in detailed and uh, uh, profound, I think, ways when you talk to them. And, and none of this work would be possible if it weren't possible to engage with people in those ways. You agree? I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you to Jeremy and Matt for coming and sharing their book with us this evening. Thanks to all of you for coming.